welcome to another episode of 353rd. I am your host, Scott Barstow. And I'm your other host, Anders Brennan. Anders, I thought it would be good today to talk about payments. Payments, yes. Payments. Yeah, so we've had, as you know, we've had a number of breaches over the last, security breaches over the last, really, this year has been a bad year for major retailers. We've had Target, Home Depot, uh, the P.F. Chang's restaurant chain here really? in the U.S. Yeah. with a major breach. And so I thought, wow. it'd be, I thought it would be interesting to explore uh, how payments work, how credit card payments work, how these companies are storing credit cards, and why, why the opportunity exists for hackers to come in and just raid these treasure troves of information and then talk about some companies that are doing some interesting things to try and solve this problem going forward. I love it. So I let's talk it. about let's talk about how a credit card is stored, or generally how secure information is stored, and how how a company like Home Depot or Target might store credit card information and try to keep it secure. Right. Yeah. Big big topic. Lots of uh, lots of background there. Lots of history uh, to it. Of course, starting out way back a uh, hundred years ago when we first started with uh, with credit cards. You remember you had that little swipe machine, the little uh, uh, you know clunk clunk like takes yeah, an impression right. of the card kind of deal. Yeah, the carbon paper, right? You'd have a couple of copies of that. Well, you know, those things were were pretty controllable, relatively controllable, like uh, like anything else written on a piece of paper. Like you didn't have it unless you could actually see it. Um, over time, you know, that, that was like the 70s. Let's call that the 70s. Over time, the 80s showed up, and suddenly we had to save these things uh, uh, at, at merchant uh, locations in databases, like on computers, essentially. And, uh, and we were, typically, this was files to begin with, and, and people would just write the credit card numbers down the file, and that's great. It's very convenient, et cetera, et cetera. You can have a computer process them, except... It is trivially cheap to copy a file. So suddenly this new vector opens up. And there, there were a number of relatively small, compared to today, uh, breaches where these files got out. And um, so this industry started doing you know, various things to make that harder and harder to, uh, to take advantage of, like uh, trying to encrypt the data. Uh, yeah, and and, it, and the other, I think the other material change in the middle of this was that people started using credit cards and debit cards as a primary method of payment. Really, right. yeah. In the eighties and the seventies, people were still paying cash and writing checks. Right. And really, I think in the nineties is when you started to see credit cards come on as a uh, not even. I guess that's probably when it started to transition to a primary form of payment. Yeah, a credit card is a very complicated product. You have the credit part of it, uh, where a institution is, you know, giving you money where they expect to be paid later in the future and will charge you some interest rate. And then there's the credit card network, the ability to clear the payment, uh, which is convenient, which is why I would argue a lot of people are using cards. And that's where debit cards were interesting because they didn't require you to, uh, take out credit and pay a fee. Um, so yeah, there's it's a very and and of course there's dispute resolution services with that and there's all kinds of crazy point systems and and miles and all these 
you know, things that have been invented on top of that. Um, but at the end of the day, really what, what uh, I think drove the, uh, drove the explosion was a combination of the, the network and the available credit you know, the availability of credit. Yep. So, so anyway, so these companies have this problem with this, with this data. They, uh, if they encrypt it and write it down, you know, write the encrypted data down in order to access this data, let's say you're setting up a monthly recurring billing kind of deal, uh, you have to decrypt that card every single time. So it's a lot less convenient. Um, before they were encrypting, actually, they were doing crazy things like splitting the card up, like put a half of the number here and half of the number there. And only if you put the two numbers together, do you get the original? Um, there's obvious, you know, pluses and minuses to that. Uh, you can keep things unique, but you know, and you obviously can't forget which number associates, which with the other number and stuff like that. Yeah. But, at, so, at some point there's still, there's still this common key that has to be present that tells you where all of the pieces are. Right. That piece still existed. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So, uh, so the world went on like this and in, into the uh, the roaring '90s, the latter part of the '90s, when uh, uh, it wasn't really a revolution yet, but the e-shopping, the you know, basically using your card online became a thing. Uh, and then, uh, surprise, surprise, this uh, uh, this uh, thing comes up called uh, PCI. Uh, you know, it's a PCI compliance. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, the thing that you, you essentially the card, uh, distributors will require you to be PCI compliant in order to, uh, you know, take cards essentially to have That's the number right. in the raw format in, in some way. And, and this uh, consists of a very complicated set of, of, uh, auditing and, and, um, different, uh, firewall requirements and and uh, there's there's some interesting pieces to it though like uh, data at rest and and data in flight uh, obviously when somebody types in a credit card into their browser it, they generally have a an encrypted connection between their browser and your server as you as a company your server um, and that's an end-to-end -end encryption anyone in the middle of that can't really figure out what the credit card number is it's not in the clear out over the you know public internet but once it gets to your server you have an unencrypted copy of it for some period of time generally you save that in memory for a short time you do what you need to do with run the card number through the the clearing network and and you know make your charge or whatever but if you're going to save that for let's say a recurring billing reason um you might uh, take that number and encrypt it, you know, split it up or encrypt it or do something. And then when the data is at rest, in other words, it's on a disk somewhere and it's not ephemeral, ephemeral like RAM, uh, that will be deleted as soon as you, as you close down that program. Once you write the, the stuff down, it, uh, it is now at rest and arguably the access to it has, has opened up quite a bit. Typically, right. yeah, in server processes, memory is, is not accessible by other processes unless you grant it privilege through uh, various means. When data is written on disk, it's essentially a, a file that has arguably wider uh, read implications. Now, of course, you, you protect that as you normally would, but 
encrypting the data and and additionally encrypting it with some kind of assault so that the same number encrypted multiple times will be different every time um you know there there's there's different things that you want to do there now you know that we're way in the weeds here let's jump way out and look at the entire pro entire uh system so we have a bunch of people out there who want to buy things and they use a unique number that they've been given that allows the merchant to run a charge for whatever the number is this is a this is a model and, and you keep using that number over and over every time you want to make a purchase so this is a model that has obvious problems the the uh, uh the responsibility for maintaining the um uh, the privacy of that information is now on the merchant who is trying to make money by charging you. It doesn't seem like it's lined up well there. Um, I agree with that. I think the other, going back to your, the kind of the history of all of this, I think the other thing that's been overlooked in a lot of these breaches is that you can't discount the what's happening with physical access. So, for instance, the Home Depot breach was actually a breach at point of sale right they had a worm on the terminals that were processing payments in stores yeah and every time you swiped your card that was they were they were actually pushing that card out to you know to the wherever whoever was uh you know instigating the attack they were capturing that data as you were swiping it in the store so it wasn't even an e-commerce problem right they actually had they had infiltrated the point of sale systems, and that's happened on a number of occasions. And the other the other interesting risk that uh, I know just from being uh, in the restaurant uh, kind of restaurant point of sale business for a while is that uh, it's not uncommon for your server yeah. to to walk around <laughs> with a magstripe reader yeah. in their pocket, and they swipe your card on the way to the terminal and capture it, and then later they go sell that information. Yeah, and so there's all these sorts of, and in Europe you don't have that problem because they bring the terminal to your, you know, to your table and all of that sort of thing. So there's, you know, there's, you know, there's these kind of weird stopgap measures in place, and there's you know chip and pin cards and all these other things that feel like just very small incremental steps on the way to trying to solve the problem that you talked about, which is now why do I have this, you know, sixteen digit number? that stays the same for years and years. And, you know, that made sense back in the seventies when you right. went, went to the store and they did the carbon paper thing and they did, and they ran it over the top of your card. You had to have the card number imprinted on the card in order for that to work. And it's like, nothing's changed. Yeah. If you think about it, really the only thing that's changed about a credit card since the seventies or when they first came out is the, uh, is how it's used. The actual distribution of the card what the you know the how a card's embossed and all of that sort of stuff is still exactly the same. Yeah, they still work exactly the same, which seems ludicrous when you say that out loud. Yeah, it is, uh, and, and as you say, a number of band aids have been applied for sure. Uh, these are all just little band aids here, there, and everywhere. One of the more interesting band aids, but obviously has a scaling problem, is the. Uh, unique number per transaction band-aid, which doesn't solve the 
uh, you know, so so what that is, uh, just quickly, would be you go online to make a purchase and you pop in a credit card number that will work once for the amount of money that you are trying to spend right at that time. So even if somebody swipes it or, you know, grabs a number and sells it to somebody or, or, or whatever, it, it doesn't matter. You, it won't you won't uh you won't be charged a second time uh, even even double billing by on purpose or by mistake would be covered by that but of course the problem is it doesn't that doesn't help with uh recurring services and certainly not convenient uh if you're trying to buy something on uh Amazon or some site that you might use an, a lot mm-hmm. uh you know storing that information uh, and there are ways around this but and for whatever reason probably scaling uh unique numbers haven't become popular at all uh it, but it is still just a band-aid you're right it'd be much yeah. better to to use some kind of a, a one-time payment token you'll avoid all of the problems of merchants having to store your uh you have to trust the merchant that they're not going to take your uh card number and run it for other things um yep. That's exactly right. I think, that, well, yeah. that, that responsibility doesn't need to be in the hands of the merchant. They have no business and only disincentives to, to maintain that, to manage that properly. That's right. And it also, because of PCI compliance, it induces this huge cost on every merchant. And, and so if you're, if you're a business that takes credit cards, which is any business anymore, yeah. um, you, ha- you now have all of the headaches of PCI compliance. So I think what's what's been interesting to watch is you have companies now who have stepped into that gap and said, "Hey, we're going to offload uh, offload your PCI compliance to us. We'll take all of the risk, and we'll we'll store your card for you. We'll give you back a what's essentially a token that says, that will give you access back to that card when you need it. Uh, but we're going to take all of the PCI compliance headaches off. And that's a company. You know, there's companies like Stripe." And these other companies that that's all they do yeah. is they they will store all of the credit card information for you. They store the customer data. They kind of take a, a lot of the risk. And that's been a I think for many, many retailers and merchants, that's been a huge win. Yeah. And just in offloading the risk of storing credit cards, because now I can I can tell the story that, hey, I can take a credit card. But Mr. Customer, I'm not the guy you know, you don't have to worry about me the you know the flower shop uh storing your credit card on my local machine on my local point of sale terminal i'm not going to do that anymore i've offloaded all of that responsibility to someone else yeah yeah it's it's uh you know a series of band-aids again (laughs) to 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 fix a a problem that essentially was created because it was never designed to be used in in a world where uh you know, it's just access to the information. You know, the information essentially wants to be free. Yeah. Uh, it wants to be copied. Uh, it's just data sitting there. That's very, and it very always simple. will be, right? There will yeah. always be incentives, especially with payment information. There's always a huge incentive for someone to come looking for it. Yeah. Especially if, you know, if they capture all of that information, now they've got, you know, 20 million credit cards. Well, it doesn't, all you have to do really is just do the math. They can do a small number of transactions across a small number of those cards to where it doesn't really show up yeah. and you don't really pay attention. It's like, oh, what's that $2 charge on my card? And they're making you know, tons of money while charges go undisputed or unnoticed in most people's bills. Yeah. So yeah. I think the – it's, but it's interesting to me 
that the that we still walk around in our in our everyday lives with wallets with a card number printed on the card, our name on the card, you know, our signature on the back of the card, like that means anything anymore. It's like all of these arcane things are still in place. And it, it seems to me that there's an opportunity and we, you know, there are companies that are starting to step into this gap, but there's an opportunity here to really start thinking differently about what a, what something that you carry around with you means. And it could be as simple as, you know, why not take the card number off the card? Yeah. It doesn't need to be there. Yeah. What the only person that needs to know that card number is me as the card holder. Because else, uh, because if I'm swiping it at a terminal, um, at a at a restaurant or whatever, they don't need to know the card number unless the swipe doesn't work. <laughs> and you know, candidly, you don't want anyone hand keying your card number anyway. So if a card doesn't work, you should probably give them a different card. Yeah. And and if I'm sitting in your example, if I'm sitting at my house and you know and buying something with Amazon, I can have that card number elsewhere. Uh, you know, or what the card number is, if I even need the number anymore, but let's just say I did, I still don't need it on the card. I just need access to it somewhere that I only, I can see. Right. Well, so yeah, the, these, these would be, you know, sort of other incremental improvements here, but at the end of the day, really the problem is the merchant is the one that's that you are essentially turning over the keys to your bank account in a way. Yep. And you or you're just it's like as if you went to a, a retailer and you took your wallet out and with all the cash in it and you plonk, plinked it down on the counter and then you said pull you know take the amount of cash that I owe you and then you take your wallet and you go away only your wallet is actually still sitting there. Yep. And they could take as much cash as they so that that's fundamentally wrong. I mean, how do you do this with cash? Well, you have a bunch of cash in your pocket. You pull out, you know, five bucks or whatever it is to pay for the thing, and then you walk away. And even if the retailer, you know, hopes and prays that they they, you know, could charge you again, they can't because you, you know, it's a difference between a push and a pull system. Uh so what we really need, I mean, what what would work so much better, I should say, would be a push system. Now, in the case of a credit card, it's a dumb piece of plastic. But you also have in your pocket, usually, uh, a phone that is well more than capable of doing this. I mean, it's just laughably simple. Um, Add to that, you could probably build this into the credit card. Like you could probably have an electronic credit card, be it a chip or a even little thing like the coin card with the screen. You know, you know coin, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's a great little device. All right, so so it's, so the coin is a device, a, a card that mimics all of your cards. So you don't bring all of your cards around. You just bring this coin card around. You use a little button to switch between the different cards, and then it just runs like any you know, as a mag stripe, like any normal card would. So and there's no card. There's no card number anywhere. It's not storing that stuff. It's not right. visible to the user. It's just a. It looks like a little black, uh, you know, credit yeah, card size card. card. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so wouldn't it be great if you had a card like that with a little button on it that you say, okay, you know, this meal here that I'm paying for is $50. So let me, you know, authorize $50 and then give you the thing and you go run it or whatever you do. And maybe it's a one-time use number, so it's backwards compatible with the old system or who knows. You run the card, you get the, you know, the meal paid for, 
you try to run it multiple times, it wouldn't work because you didn't authorize that. And then you take your card back. That might be an interesting little bridge there between the sort of the current world in the United States. We have to caveat all of this and say, well, this is really a, the big problem in the United States, not really a problem in Europe with chip and pin. Right. Um, but it is a big problem in the United, in, in the United States. And so, um, you know, that might be that might go a, a good ways to kind of bridging the gap between a push and a pull system, because it it would, you know, you would essentially push 50 bucks into a one time use credit card number that anybody can go and run and they go run it. And then it, you know, clears through the traditional network as it does and out pops, you know, you're, you're paid for now. And if you try to run it again, it won't work. Um, that might be an interesting sort of hybrid, um, but there are really interesting uh, other solutions to the problem if you don't have to maintain that backward compatibility. Um, the the obvious you know the obvious thing there is is Bitcoin. Uh, you know here's a here's a system that has no chargeback capability. Uh, it is a push only system. If, if I want to send some value, if I want to send you Scott twenty bucks. I can, you know, pop out my phone, go, go into my Circle app and push 20 bucks to you. Now, if, if, uh, if I want to request 20 bucks from you, I could send you a, a link or something that would say, send Anders 20 bucks and here's the address, but it would be totally in your court to push the money to me. Uh, yeah. Just erasing the whole chargeback thing solves an enormous problem. It is. It is, you know, a lot of people sort of traditionally minded think that's a disaster scenario. What, I can't go to my financial institution and and complain and get the charge reversed? Um, no, you can't. But, you know, once you understand that and you work within a system, you, you decide to work within a system that is like this, it really is a whole lot better. Um, I think the other the other thing to remember here is that the I think your analogy of cash is a really good one because cash never had these problems. You right. have the physical problem of cash, which is I'm carrying around two hundred dollars in my wallet. Somebody takes my wallet. That's a problem. Yeah. But the if you think about the ripple effect of somebody right now taking your wallet, and most people carry very little cash, but they carry access to thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in their wallet. Yeah. And if you yeah, you know if you carry, if you're carrying multiple credit cards and all that stuff, all of a sudden you know, your wallet goes missing either literally or someone takes a chunk of your wallet by hacking, you know, Home Depot or Target or one of these big merchants, the access that they now have is far greater than cash. So in some ways, we're worse off from a, from a security standpoint. Cash is, has more friction associated with it because I can't send it over the wire. But I, but I also I, – one could argue that we're actually moving in the wrong direction – because cash was something where, if, like you said, if I walked into a restaurant, if I give you fifty dollars, you can't turn that fifty into a hundred. The mm -hmm. most you could do is is not give me back all of my change. That's the worst scenario mm -hmm. that happens. And and I think with with uh, Bitcoin, we'll talk about Apple Pay here in a moment. But I think with with uh, protocols like Bitcoin, it's not that you can't get money back from a merchant. It's just that they have to just send you money back. Yes. You don't get the access. You don't get the right to say, "Hey, I never authorized that," because 
you had to have authorized it yeah. in, this, in, the, in the Bitcoin nope, world. Nobody else can. Yeah. Nobody else can, unless somebody has access to your virtual wallet, right? So if, unless somebody has access to your Circle account and can act on your behalf or your Coinbase account or whatever it is, um, they can, that, that transaction can't happen. So your, your ability to, you know, if I, if I ordered a book from Amazon and the book gets here and it's torn apart, Instead yeah. of me saying, hey, Amazon, I'm just going to I'm going to dispute this charge. What I then have to do is and, you know, and go to my credit card company and it starts this huge process that costs all sorts of money and time. My dispute is now and the and both transactions are directly with the other party. And there, you don't need this intermediary on your behalf acting and saying, hey, you know, I'm Visa and Scott said, uh, that he never authorized this charge. So I'm just going to tell you, the merchant, that we're not paying it. Yeah. And you have all of this, uh, all of this stuff that happens as a, as a part of that. So Bitcoin is very interesting in this world, obviously. But the other one I wanted to talk talk about before before we finish is Apple Pay because I believe they've actually stumbled onto something that's very interesting um, in terms, especially in light of your idea of one-time tokens. That's really what Apple represents. Yeah. At massive scale and massive deployment. Yeah, yeah. You 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 don't uh, you don't turn around and and you know flip a switch and suddenly have this unless you are a company like Apple that can say, hey, uh, you know, here's uh, eighty million customers the first year, and uh, next year, you know, we'll make that uh, three hundred million or whatever the numbers are. I mean, they're just, they're just astronomically high compared. So who else could do this? Like you know, can Amazon? I mean, who else has five hundred million credit cards in right. a, in a database? Right. So it's Apple, with iTunes, and and all of that, right? And then it's Amazon, and yeah. like there's like I'm hard. But even pressed. Amazon doesn't have doesn't everybody have walking device. around with a device. That's what exactly. Apple has. The and nobody's you know the Kindle Fire is and all of that stuff is irrelevant. Yeah, I think we've in terms of the, numbers. Yeah, yeah, the judgment's been made on those devices. It's not the, like that's not going to happen. And so, at least not in the in the current in the near future. So I think what Apple has is they've got all of you know hundreds of millions of people walking around with a device that will eventually enable you to just you know plop down your you know you touch your phone on on something and voila the payments made right. So right yeah so so it's so this is brilliant. So this is using a uh, uh, y- y- the argument. Let's say, just say the argument previous to Apple Pay has always been, well, it's going to take forever to upgrade the card swipe machines and all of that infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And what Apple is doing is coming in the room and saying, hey, you know, we already have the identity. We'll, we'll run one-time use tokens over a, uh, the traditional network. Um, but give very strong guarantees to it. Like essentially we'll own the customer, yep. um, which, you know, if you're, if you're a, a, a retailer, one of the re- one of the things you just get for free when somebody uses a credit card, it's like, a, it's the same as using a, uh, a loyalty card in a, in a company. Why would you, why would they be incented to have a loyalty card? Well, it's because not only do you have the thing that says, you know, Petco in your pocket or whatever, and you're always constantly thinking about it, um, you come in and, and 
they know it's you and they can track your your spending behavior. Well, you can also track the spending behavior just by following the same card, noticing That's the right. same card over and over. So you know that this is the same person. You get some really interesting data out of that. Um, right. Well, uh, you know, Apple is essentially saying, you know, we're going to maintain that from now on, which is – First of all, I mean, this is a brilliant business if you think about it. Like, what's the cost for Apple to do this? It's relatively minimal. First of all, all of the consumers are buying the the, the phones at full price. So uh, it doesn't matter if you buy it on a contract at 200 bucks. You, you're still paying full price for the phone uh, over your two-year contract you are. So so the, the, the phone is purchased for free, you know, for free, basically. Apple doesn't have to do some large cash expenditure to do that. They're leveraging the existing network, which is kind of there already. They, they have an, a solution that is intrinsically less uh, uh, risky because of the way that it works. So the, the whole chargeback nightmare or fraud, really fraud nightmare is greatly reduced. So it's kind of like the last really, you know, big, um, uh, slight refinement of the old system, and they're just going to reap tons of cash from this. It's going to it's going to reap them a lot of money, and it's not going to cost them much at all. Yeah, uh, you know. So so it's just a. I mean, in terms of you know, a move by Apple, it's a brilliant one, and it's almost one that only they could do. Uh, and they will be richly rewarded for it in terms of uh, in terms of uh, payment. You know. Yeah. The other company that I think is going to be interesting to watch in this space is PayPal, because yeah. PayPal is just you know for 15 years has been just slowly, and maybe not even slowly, but just uh, you know just steadily gaining market share, gaining traction making it easier to pay with PayPal. You know, they started with eBay. That was kind of, well, they didn't really start there, but that was their first big splash was making it easy for eBay sellers and buyers to exchange money. And now I think because of just the sheer volume of people who are on PayPal already, they are also in a really interesting position, much like Apple, but without the device support. Mm -hmm. But PayPal has already figured out how to store your credit card securely. They've already figured out how to make it easy to send money back and forth. So all the characteristics you talk about with Bitcoin are essentially there with, pay, with PayPal already. Um, and the benefit they have is that it works with kind of the existing system. But I think what you're going to start to see from them is the introduction of things like one-time tokens. And all of the – it'll be – I think they're another company – that stands to reap huge rewards in the face of security breaches and companies not wanting to store their own uh, cards anymore. And just the liability that comes along with that. If you think about the target thing in particular, the CEO lost his job yeah. and <laughs> you know, the company lost hundreds of millions of dollars. They were sued, you know, it's class action suits. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of money that it costs them just to transact business. So if they can pay a company like PayPal, a small fee, and offload some of that responsibility, I think it gets a, it starts to get pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I have my I have my um, misgivings about PayPal and their ability to actually, uh, you know, substantively move forward. I, I, they just 
they seem very kind of old fashioned. Uh, they do. It's they odd, do. It's odd to say that for a company that that essentially pioneered email payments, but uh, they're really just the. It's very much old guard thinking, and they will be dragged forward by other people you know, kicking and screaming to the money tree. It seems like one of those scenarios. So it's very strange. But you can't argue with the fact that they have the numbers. They have the, um, uh, you know, the size that, that makes them interesting. So, yep. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, uh, they are. It, the opportunity is there for them to be to step into this gap yeah. and say, hey, we've already figured out the fraud problem. You know, we've already figured out a lot of these problems. Trust us. Yeah. You know, trust us. Pay us. 0.25 cents per transaction or whatever the number is and we'll just make this problem go away for you yeah and mm -hmm. so they've got the trust they've got the as you said they've got the numbers of users and the opportunity is there the question is as you said do they have the right people in place to pull off something like an apple pay type initiative yeah. something that big and bold which yeah. i think is what it's going to take that kind of thinking uh to solve this problem and and who knows what that who knows what the eventual solution looks like i think you could argue you know you've got some of the same problems with carrying around your if your device is now the thing that where is how you pay all of your bills if my iphone or you know my phone or whatever it is is the thing that i'm using to pay mm -hmm. now it's you know okay well what's the risk of me losing that and yeah. so you still have some of the same problems that you have with a wallet obviously you can secure that device with you know, somebody can't get to it unless they, you know, have your thumbprint or whatever it is. But the so there are it. Uh, it's definitely a big leap forward from a physical wallet. But at some point, you know, there'll be people who are smart enough and care enough to figure out how to break into the phone, you know, and get access to it. And so you still have some of those physical problems. Yeah. Yeah, you do, but it's not nearly as bad as the previous. Um, Agreed. And and there are ways to remotely wipe, and there's there's lots of things you can you know you can lock things essentially in the cloud. Most people are not walking around with like for example Bitcoin private keys on their cell phone, and right. they exist nowhere else. So it's relatively rare. Yep. Um, not not non-existent, but it is relatively rare. Um, anyway, that it's. Uh, exceedingly interesting topic and in an area of uh the world that is drastically changing right now it seems like you know in a sense next year is the year of payments or something it's like you know it's going to be something like that a very big uh, we're going to see some very big moves in the in the very near future and uh it should be a lot of fun to see how that all goes down i agree uh, all right that's our show for today thanks for listening and we'll be back with another episode of 353rd <laughs>